0: Hey there, this is another episode that's supported in part by an arts and culture grant from the city of Fort Myers. Now, here's the show.
1: One, two, three.
0: Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that uses the way music connects us to memories as a way to tap into our guests' lives and stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Connery. Our guest today is Maestro Rafael Ponte, music director of the Punagorda Symphony and the Paducah Symphony Orchestra. He's been here in Southwest Florida for seven years and there in Kentucky for nine. Ponte says his main goals are to raise the artistic level of the orchestras, achieve passionate and inspired performances, enrich lives through great orchestral experience, and make the orchestra important and relevant to the community. He's a champion of music education with his maestro visits to schools. Every third grader in the county gets a visit every school year, master classes for middle school, high school, and universities, and annual youth concerts, which are affiliated with the Carnegie Hall Link Up program. His outreach also extends to adults with Behind the Notes, his pre-concert program Musical Conversations with Raphael, and the Symphony as a Business Model program, which aims to attract new businesses and patrons to the orchestra world, Maestro Ponte has worked with world-class artists from all over the world. His reviews have dubbed him as a rising star, charismatic, electrifying, and empowering. He was recently named a leader of distinction by Florida Weekly, and now we've got him here to hear his three-song stories. So let's go.
1: Hey there, Maestro. How you doing? Mike, great to see you. Now I just realized after that introduction why I'm always tired.
0: <laughs> and I will say, so far, we've only known each other for about 10 minutes. You're definitely charismatic. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out about electrifying. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, are you ready for this?
1: You know, I got to tell you what a great idea! Oh, thank you. <laughs> when I when I heard what you wanted to do, I was I took me a lot of consideration of what I was going to present. This is really a great format.
0: Well, we appreciate that, um, uh, hearing that because it, it feels like something that we're onto
1: something. So, um, where did you grow up, and what was your musical background of your childhood? Uh, my parents came here uh, in 1952. 55, from Italy. Uh, and I was born in Rochester, New York, which was just uh, lucky because the Eastman School of Music is there. And because of that, the community was very musical, had a great youth orchestra, had a great symphony orchestra, a Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, was conducted at the time by David Zinman, and it just kind of flourished from there. I began as a, a violin player and a pianist because my parents thought coming from you know the old school that those would be good instruments to play and would give me a good foundation, never with the idea to become a professional, but just thought that was part of my life and my education. Uh-huh. And uh, that was very important to them. So go ahead. And then later, uh, because uh, I switched to become a trumpet player uh, in middle school – and then became a principal trumpet in the youth orchestra there. And by the time I was 17, uh, my senior year in high school, I was playing fourth trumpet with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra with David Zinman. And, of course, my teacher, Dick Jones, was principal trumpet at the time. And I thought I had really made it. Mm-hmm. And I've had a, several of those levels in my life. And, boy, I think, really, now I'm really there. I've arrived, right? And then you realize a year later, two years later, when something else comes up, that I didn't know anything And I keep having these little epiphanies in my life always. Um, So I then went to study at the Cleveland Institute of Music with uh, uh, the great Bernard Adelstein, who was hand-picked principal trumpet of the Cleveland Orchestra by the great George Zell at the time. And again, my sophomore year, I'm sitting in my dorm room and I received a call from Dave Zouter, the personnel manager, saying, listen, we— you need to, we need a sub this week. Someone's ill in the trumpet section. Would you be interested? And I thought it was one of my buddies calling up and pranking <laughs> me because this is what I was – my goal was to right. be in the Cleveland Orchestra. It's like getting a call to say, listen, I play a little baseball, but now I'm going to be pitch hitting with the Yankees. Right. And I'm sitting on the bench with that all-star cast, you know. Um, so it was just a dream. And then again, I thought I knew something. But sitting in the back row of the Cleveland Orchestra – At 19 years old with Mazel, Lauren Mazel on the podium in Severance Hall with all these who's who's with that sound and that great history, I was like uh, in fantasy land. Hmm. And then I got to go to Carnegie Hall with them three times. I got to go to Mexico. I got to do a lot of great performances with them and then played assistant principal to my teacher as he got older. Uh, Was a real lesson.
0: Hmm. What was the uh, sort of the musical fabric of your childhood in terms of like what were your parents listening to? You know, were they listening to American music? Were they listening to music from Italy? When did you get to start listening to American music? Flesh that out a little bit.
1: It was kind of a combination. My mother was had a beautiful voice and loved singing. My father is a. Uh, Well, he kind of – he loves opera and Puccini is his favorite, favorite uh, composer and that's where we have this little battle because I like Verdi. He likes Puccini and which one's better, which one's not, you know, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, coming from Rome, Italy, uh, Caracallos, where they would have gone to hear operas, to hear the great Benamini Gili, Maria Caniglia, you know, uh, uh, Maria Callas. All these great artists were performing in Rome, Italy at the time uh, where they were living and uh, coming here – Opera was still something they listened to because I think there was a real sever when they left. It was a happy and sad thing at the same time. They were trying to achieve a better life by coming here, but they were leaving everything they knew and loved back in Italy, and that was difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plan was to come here for a year or two, make some money, and put it in a suitcase and go back and feed the family in those days, uh, and that never happened. So. I heard opera very early because I think it was the comfort of not only the repertoire or opera itself, but the Italian language in the house, I think, comforted them. Hmm. And that's what I I remember first. Of course, we were bombarded with music of the, you know, 60s and Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing as, you know, it, it happened. And that was interesting and new for them. Uh, and new for them. But I'm talking about being born into a family that didn't speak much English uh, at all. They learned – my father didn't speak any English. My mother did because she was a little more uh, educated and and had more interest in that kind of thing. My father was just a hard worker and uh, uh, never thought he'd be in the United States. But uh, the idea of my father learning English as I learned it in grammar school was pretty impressive. Hmm.
0: If I say earliest musical
1: memory you can think of, what pops into your head? I think uh, probably listening to those operas early on. But uh, there was one influence – On my list that came up really, really early. Oh, yeah? Really early. And I remember seeing the album on the shelf. They only had about four or five albums. I'm assuming that they bought them here. I don't think they would have brought. So they, meaning your parents. My parents would have brought anything from Italy, I don't think. But uh, I remember seeing this album of Montevani. And that just with his face on the cover just was very impressive to me. And they would put that on all the time. And listen to this because he's known for – first of all, he's an Italian. And I think that was – there's an Italian guy in the house with another face and we can hear his music. Uh I guess I think it was, again, therapeutic for them or comforting. And they had known the name because he was born in Venice, Italy. Uh, was a great violinist in his time and also was a great conductor and orchestrator and was so good at it, he developed his own sound. Um, it's like cascading of strings. I don't know if you've ever heard that terminology of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was primarily a sound of strings and there's still – there's nothing today that even compares to it because it was a real school of writing and the scores and the parts were were owned by him and now his uh, foundation. They're not out there. So you have to really be connected or have a connection to get those scores to be played. Have you ever been able to get those scores to be played by something you've conducted? I have actually, because uh, this kind of comes full circle. Deborah Dansby is a violist and co president of the Montevani Foundation of the United States. Okay. There's a split. There's still one that's in the UK, which is the primary one, and she is co owner uh, of the one here in, uh, in Florida, and she plays in the Punta Gorda Symphony. You're kidding me. I am not kidding you. And therefore, <laughs> <laughs> this is
0: it. I thought you were going to bring it down to like somewhere in southwest, you know, South Florida, not necessarily playing
1: in the symphony. She plays in my orchestra and uh, lives in Orlando. And um, it's just an amazing thing. So therefore, I have access to any score I want at any time.
2: Maestro, um, I, I, I have a clip here that I'm going to play. I, I don't know how accurate it is. It says, like the, the title says, Cascading Strings Effect... Arranged by the genius that was Ronald Binge? 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 For for Montavani. For Montavani, okay. Can can you just let us know kind of what we're hearing and sure. how the cascading strings works? Sure. All right.
1: So, do you hear the beautiful string sound with a harp playing? Yeah. It's very light on flute, woodwind instruments, or brass, or even percussion, but it's about the strings. Now, in normal orchestras, you have a first violin section, which normally would play the melody, and a second violin section playing an accompaniment or a harmonization part to it. He would have one, two, and three sections within each section. Okay. And therefore, you can hear the cascading where it's. Mm, da, 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 dee, da, while one section's holding that first note, the second one's tearing the harmony. So he has six different harmonizations within the violin section alone. Then he does the same in the viola, cello, and bass section. Okay. So it sounds like it's many more strings than there actually are playing.
2: It's like a chorus of strings.
1: Absolutely. And therefore, he was able to get that lush, almost. Uh, Uh, rich sound in the string section, because him being a great violinist himself, that's his signature sound. When you came to the Punta Symphony
0: Orchestra, did you know that, I mean, you didn't know her yet. I mean, when did that all come together for you when it was, you know, from your childhood seeing the album to there's a woman I know who can help me make this happen?
1: Ken Moulton uh, and Deborah are are co-presidents of this organization. I learned of the uh, at the time, it was called the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra. Correct. Uh, renamed recently to the Ponte Symphony. Very recently. Yes. And I, uh, I learned about it because I had originally made contact with them here because I was vacationing in Fort Lauderdale, uh, and I just happened to give them a quick call. They were very receptive. Uh, because the Montavani thing was in my mind, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could guest conduct or do something with the Montavani Orchestra? I mean, that would kind of be coming full circle for me yeah. as a child and would be really cool. Ken was the one on the phone that mentioned, do you know there's an opening in Punta Gorda, Florida, the symphony? They're looking for conductors. Are you interested? And, of course, uh, it was... December, and I had come from New York where the six foot of snow was. Yeah, and
0: you're like, anywhere near here will be fine. And that's, that's exactly
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> so he was, that organization uh, was actually the ones that made me aware that there was an opening. And then I, I threw my head in the ring on that, you know, I called my agent and said, listen, can you check into this for me? And it just worked out. And the fact that Deb Dansby was playing in my orchestra, I had no idea at the time. Um, but that's how it came about.
0: Well, uh, should we get on to your first song because it's kind of in this world, right? Sure, let's do it. What do you want to talk about, or do you want How do you want to segue from that to
1: this? I mentioned that seeing that Montavani album on my shelf, and as a little boy, and uh, one of the tunes that I remember vividly was this tune called "Smile," and that's a piece of music. This is a double thing for me because Charlie Chaplin. The great film artist, in uh, silent film, wrote that piece of music. Oh wow! That became super famous, and this arrangement we're going to hear is actually the Montavani Orchestra and arrangement of that piece, being played with that lush, cascading string sound. It's called "Smile" by Charlie Chaplin. All right. Well, let's listen to it. What a great sound, huh?
0: Yeah. What goes through your head when you listen to that?
1: Well, I was just thinking, you know, I'm sitting here. I hadn't heard this that in many, many, many years, you know. Um, it just was bringing back thinking of my family, my parents, and that first sound that I would have heard. And I, I'm often reminded that's just still beautiful to me. It's not everybody's cup of tea nowadays. And I'm sure teenagers of today would have never even heard this. Sure. But how can you say that's not gorgeous? Yeah. It's like ethereal kind it's, of sh- it's, shimmering. It's beautiful. And to consider it was written by Charlie Chaplin. Well, I, I was going to ask, is, did he write much? I, I think that the was first
0: his— I think I've ever heard that I connection? think it's a
1: one-hit wonder. I think that's his, his thing. And uh, the thing is, film was important to my family because in those days, I remember the Adriana Theater— and cafe, which are right by each other. In those days, my father, as a little boy, he told me often that he would try to get into the movie theater to see the movies. And even to this day, I've been recently to Italy where it's still where they're changing the reels halfway through the movie, and they have a... Uh, an intermission yeah. because they've got to change the actual film. Hmm. Uh, but those were the days when they, the ushers had to kind of get the kids out of there because the next showing was coming and the kids were always trying to sneak in and, yeah. sh- and hide and watch the second film you know, for free. Uh, he often – he actually mentioned once he saw Gregory Peck filming in front of the Fountain tre- Trevi after he just came out of the theater – and saw a Gregory Peck film. Oh, wow. that must Because, have. you know, Italy's Italy and, and stardom is there and all the actresses were there. Yeah. So so Charlie Chaplin was something he was familiar with as well as that's why he came to the United States. And John Wayne was a big hero mm. because of all the, the Westerns he had saw as a little boy.
2: Yeah. Speaking, <clears throat> speaking of Charlie Chaplin and clowns and movies, um, what do you make of the the Joker trailer? Which uses the um, uh, what's his name um, Jimmy Durant version of Jim, of this song of this song? I just think I didn't, a, know, that. Did I you didn't know, know that. I didn't know that either. Oh well, but Jimmy, everybody else who's seen that trailer, it has it has the you know with the words like "smile even though your heart is breaking." Like it's that's the background to the trailer.
1: And is Jimmy Durant singing? I, I think so. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Wow. That's a great, great move. <laughs> have you ever conducted
0: that or have you ever, you know, have that song? I have not yet, no. Hmm. Um, uh, do other people who write music, what do you call them? Composers. People? Composers, of course. Um, use that same device or that
1: same the, the layered thing? I'm sure if in the pop world uh, they might have – certainly looked at it because it became such a signature. The problem with it is that Montevani did it so well and was the first one to kind of do that. Everybody else is kind of riffing
0: on him, basically. He
1: would be criticized uh, of copying too much of that style. And everybody's always searching for their own voice as a composer, not trying to copy uh, another composer so much. Although Stravinsky was the one that said, you know, we all steal, but the great composers steal from the best. Right. (laughs) So uh, you, you can't help but being influenced by something you've heard or read or experienced, but you have to make
0: it your own. Um, uh, where does the music fit into your life these days in terms of not
1: work-related? Is there any music in your life that's not work-related? You know, that's the thing. I cannot listen to classical music when I'm not conducting or studying a score because right away the, the brain goes to, okay, is that a good tempo? Or is that the right dynamic? Right. Uh, did they interpret that correctly or did it work? You know, that kind of thing. Um, Very so clinical. I, I have to listen to something <laughs> totally out there like jazz or something else so that I can just really shut down and enjoy. What about popular music? i like liking popular music. I think it's swinging in a really cool direction again, uh, where there's actual positive lyrics out there, mm-hmm. and it's not hateful, it's beautiful, and actually there's some really great music happening on top of that. I think it's really in a good place, and I'm enjoying it. Any names you can throw out, or have you locked in with anybody? Uh, you know, n- not really. John Legend, these kind of names, okay. kind of people like that. I think that's really great. Great stuff. Great artists.
0: How do you listen to music that's not work-related? Like, there's, like, literally... It's just, like, while I'm driving around. Radio, satellite radio, what you know, um, Alexa at home, various things like that. It's
1: basically just in a car. Yeah. Because I also like the 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 idea of a quiet room in my life because I don't need noise. I need quiet. Mm. Because I've got so much in my... You know, people think a Friday night, or if you ever had a Friday night off, what would you do? I don't know what I would do because I'm either conducting... I, I go quickly from the stage to the couch. There's like no middle for me, <laughs> you know, because you're doing it, you're, you're entertaining, you yeah. got all that going on. I'm conducting a full orchestra. I got all that audience behind me. I've been promoting all week, I've been selling this whole thing, you know, big cheerleader, you know, campaigning the whole thing. And then when I just shut down, I just want to be quiet.
0: Hmm. Um, uh, what kind of car did you have? It was your first car,
1: and did it have a decent sound system in it? Well, I don't remember. I actually don't remember what it was, but I'm pretty sure it was an eight-track. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I was so frustrated because it never had a reverse.
2: Right. So I had you to listen. Go to, back. I had to listen to the whole thing again <laughs> to get
1: to the one tune that I actually liked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember any of the eight tracks you might have had?
1: Oh no, I can't.
0: No. <laughs> I can't. Would there have been popular music in that car though? Or it would have been popular. Would it okay. it would have been yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah Beatles or something like that, Probably. maybe. Sure, sure. Um, uh, uh, when was the last time you
1: bought music that had a physical form? Uh, can't remember. Can't remember. Although I, I did uh, when we moved from New York to down here to Florida. I had over two thousand LPs. That I, inher- that I got from a uh, music school that was getting rid of that format. Oh, wow. They were going to all CDs and then later everything else. I mean, CDs are almost obsolete now too. But I, I obtained – I mean, these were pristine, like the entire Beethoven collection huh. that were brand new, like in condition, of Toscanini. And then I had them all – the whole series with Carrion, and then on and on and on, and I could sit and compare these great recordings, you know. And then the LP sound was so fantastic. I uh, had great speakers, great great tables to turn them on too, but the maintenance of them was very very tedious. Hmm.
2: What's the What's the most recent one you do remember buying? And if it was classical, what's the most recent non classical CD or any? physical that you remember buying?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I don't remember. I got to be honest with you. I don't really remember. It's been so many years. You know, the thing is with these, all the formats to study now, I don't need anything. I just need my phone. Right. And I can study from my phone anywhere in the world, even upon a plane where I I get a lot of score study done in flight because that's really a downtime for me. Mm Mm-hmm. And it also shuts out the person next to me.
2: <laughs> mm. <laughs> do you, Understood. Do you go in for do you go in for like special headphones or anything like that? Or just like whatever.
1: I just put my bows on. Yeah. Noise thanks. cancelling bows and yeah. it's just a great sound and I kinda can can just dream and then look at the score and study it, and uh, it's a good use of the time. So, uh, bridge fairly quickly the gap between
0: Cleveland and the where you've been since and how you wound up in
1: Paducah. Uh, we kind of learned how you wound up in Ponte Gorda as well. Right, exactly. Uh, well, I, I played in Cleveland for for several years, and then I went uh, and took an audition in Koblenz, Germany for the rhein Moselhofer Symphony at the time. I don't think they exist any longer. The, the German orchestras are kind of melding together mm. and they're renaming themselves because the government funding is changing even in Europe as we speak. Interesting. Unfortunately. Uh, same thing in Italy with the operas and the symphonies. But uh, took that position for a year position. And then I went down to visit my family in Milan and then eventually to Rome. And that's where I met – the late uh, Giuseppe Sinopoli, a great orchestral conductor, both in opera and symphony. And he had just begun the year before to be the, uh, the music director of the Orchestra Nazionale di Santa Cecilia in Rome, Italy. And, uh, of course, my one of my aunts where I was staying lives uh, one block from the Vatican. And the symphony hall where they rehearsed was just a few more blocks away from that. So... Uh, When I wasn't in the Vatican looking at all the amazing artwork and and just relishing in this incredible spiritual place, um, I was at the symphony rehearsals with my little mini scores. He happened to notice – and I was becoming friendly with the brass section. We would go for coffee. We would play. You'd be like what? Mid-20s? Yeah, I was 20s. Mid-20s. Uh, so, we would get to be friends. So, finally, uh, one of the players said to me, listen, do you want to play here? Do you want to play? And it was an opening in Naples, Florida uh, in the trumpet section in San Carlo. Uh, and I refused to take the job for some reason. Hmm. But um, – my uncle talked me out of it. He said, Naples is a little dangerous. We don't want you living there. So I, I foolishly turned down the position mm-hmm. that they were going to hand to me after they heard me play. So I got to, I was going to all these rehearsals and Sinopoli would come out the stage door at the end, see me talking to all the brass players. And we got to, to chat and become a little friendly with the guy. And I was like, wow, he's a super, super conductor. And I commented to him, I have played this piece so many times. I forget what it was. It might've been uh, a Beethoven eight. And I said, yet today, when you rehearsed it, it's as if it was a new piece to me. And I've heard things that I've never heard before. He says, meet me tomorrow over here at this cafe and I'll show you how I do it. Hmm. So I bring my score, right? I meet him at this cafe after rehearsal. I had been at the rehearsal and I walked over and I met him there. And what it was is that, He's like – first of all, he was a genius. He was an amazing guy. Not Mr. Friendly, not Mr. Personable, uh, not interested in how he looked on the podium because he was a serious musician that was concerned about the sound and the music. You know what I mean? He Mm -hmm. wasn't conducting for the audience. He was conducting for the orchestra, one of those guys. you know. And I started to think, how does this happen? First of all, he has a math degree. Interesting. In mathematics. Mm -hmm. He also had a degree in archaeology. Okay. And uh, studied medicine early, which is what his parents wanted him to do. So he had all of that before he went to the conservatory to study in in, uh, Italy. And he approached music like an archaeologist. Interesting. He was taking off because, you know, if we go to a concert – and you just hear the first violin, the melody, or the trumpet, or the piccolo, because it's higher in tessitura, yeah. you're getting cheated out of all those other sounds, colors, and timbres that the composer put into that music. And he also felt, sonopoli felt, we should hear everything that is supposed to be heard. Okay? So the layering of an orchestra was that lesson for me. How do you get everything heard? How do you make things transparent enough... Uh, without losing its intensity, its color, its drive so that you do hear the second bassoon or the fourth horn or that viola part that is hidden in there with that motor that we're supposed to hear that drives the entire piece. But it's overshadowed color wise by the first violins. Hmm. So this was the beginning of how to listen, how to layer an orchestra so that we can benefit and really hear the composition the way the composer intended.
2: Hmm. You're- you're describing sound mixing. Exactly <laughs> like right. They were the first sound mixers. Exactly because right. Because all those elements, like it, yeah, if if you're if you're out there listening and only some the main thread, and that's what you focus on anyway. Like it, you really fixate on, you know, if you're if it's Mozart, there's a violin, there's five of them doing the same thing. Right.
1: Um, Absolutely. You're absolutely right. You know, whether it's rock and roll or Broadway shows or anything you're doing, it's the mixing project. It's the mixing that is the most important key element once you've got the raw tape down. Because a great sound engineer like you guys makes it all right, makes it all good and can fix but you have to do it with a
0: lot of living human beings in front of you, yeah. which are in front of a lot of living human beings. That's exactly
1: right. And it's done with wordless impulses, you know, by lesser than or more, mm-hmm. crescendo, diminuendo. And it's done by the sound or the sound and the size of my, my uh, ictus with the baton or my hand gesture. Uh, this is all indicating them, yes, I need more from you and I need less from you. And then we mix it live on the stage. And ultimately, I have to walk back during a rehearsal while they're playing and listen to what it really sounds like 34 well, rows back. I was back. just
0: going to ask that because that's one of the, you know, you got to do that when you're mixing sound for a live, you know, a band or something. You can't just be the guy in the booth with the headphones Correct. on. You got to sort that out. And then if you go to a different venue, it probably changes a
1: lot too. That's exactly right because the acoustics are part of my my instrument. Yeah. If you walk in like you're like touring is always a little tricky because one night you're in a really Live acoustic, and therefore, that allegro, meaning fast, has to be a little slower and a little shorter. Otherwise,
0: it's going to get bounced back. It's going to be muddy.
1: Yeah. And then the next night, you're in a drier hall, and you can take that allegro a little faster and play a little longer to make it sound the same. Huh. I love all that. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> um, uh,
0: okay, well, let's get to your second song. I have more questions. We could probably spend 45 minutes in this middle segment right here. I got talking a riveting 90-minute <laughs> presentation on
1: the eighth note and how it fits into Western civilization if you're interested.
0: We'll, we'll, put, that in <laughs> bon- we'll put that as bonus content. Um,
1: okay, time for song number two. All right. What is it? It's a great Italian song that was featured in a film, actually, Ari Vaderci Roma. It's a simple Goodbye, Rome, that was important to my parents. And we learned this song as little children singing because it was them saying goodbye to Rome. Huh? You ready to hear it? Let's do it. Uh, uh, Arrivederci Roma, uh,
0: 1958 film, Seven Hills of Rome. Uh, This is performed by Mario
1: Lanza and Luisa Di Di Mio. Di Mio. Mario Lanza, what a great Italian-American singer. All right, let's hear it. It was the time you listen to that. Uh, just now, just, just now. <laughs> it's been a long time, but uh, it's a great film, you know, and just a great moment with the little, little Italian kids singing along, yeah. you know, and fettuccine e vino. Such a beautiful moment <laughs> because food is important to Italians and to to life and to sharing and to loving. It's a it's a beautiful thing. And goodbye to Rome. What a beautiful thing. Do you speak Italian? You parli italiano, si. And uh, do you get a chance to speak it often? Not much. Yeah. Not much here anymore. And the thing is, is when I meet people who do speak Italian, there's so many different dialects to it. Uh, you know, some of the words um, I don't understand because Calabria in more south, it's a whole different language. Huh. Like a Amici or Amico. And uh, when you go to, to Toscana, it's a miha or miho instead of Chi, Cha.
0: Uh, after we get done here, we'll have to walk by Julie Glenn's office because she's—that's our news director and the host of Gulf Coast Live. Uh, she married an Italian guy. She went over there for school and came back with an Italian guy. So she speak, <laughs> she speaks Italian around the house a lot because he speaks Italian a lot. Um, okay, let's get back into your orchestral world here. So I want to dig into. Okay, a do you do you play the trumpet these days? Do no, you, do no. you get a chance to play it for fun even? Or I
1: mean, yeah, no. Uh, when I decided because of Sinopoli's inspiration to be. Become a conductor. I did play for a couple of years as an overlap. I still played because I needed to still make a living and I right. came back uh, to the States. Um, I then went to study in Siena, Italy for five years and worked there at the in Siena, which was a great summer program, five-week program. Uh, I was in charge of conducting the orchestras there and also uh, training the conductors that came to study there. And I really wanted to be a conductor. But the thing is, just buying a baton doesn't make you a conductor. I mean, I see that all day long. Everybody's saying, "I oh, a conductor, I'm a conductor, I'm a conductor. But what do you conduct? Yeah. Uh, you need an orchestra. You need a chorus. You need a band. You need something to, to conduct, right? So... Uh, I was fortunate uh, to get a job in 2000 uh, with uh, the Austin Symphony in Texas and I became not their principal conductor but I did all their uh, youth concerts, all their education concerts, family concerts and did 24 Nutcrackers every year. So I was in Austin quite a bit throughout the whole season uh, and I did that for 10 years. In 2010, or actually in, in 2009, um, I, my agent at the time uh, called me up and says, listen, there's an opening uh, in Paducah, Kentucky with the Paducah Symphony. Are you interested? I said, and it was like quiet for like a minute on the phone. <laughs> and, uh, my first response was, uh, first of all, where is Paducah? Yeah. And what is a Paducah? <laughs> 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 and, and he had no answers for me at that point. Um So I said, listen, let's throw a hat in there. He told me what the budget was, where it was kind of located and things. And I was interested because I I did want to have my own position. Right, I was kind of— Was this like music director or— This was artistic director and conductor. uh, Gotcha. And I was, you know, second fiddle with the Austin Symphony for many years. And I kind of wanted to get on the main stage and do the real thing and and program and hire soloists and and kind of say that this is what I'm building, not just part of a staff. So— I remember coming in – I was coming in from Rochester to Chicago, O'Hare, and it's like – that's like the the Wizard of Oz of the world. Like what gate am I in and do I have to take – how many trams to get there? So we fly into Paducah, Kentucky, and I'm kind of looking for the airport as we land into what looked like a wheat field kind of thing. And I see this little one-story brick building, which I kind of thought, well, that's probably where they keep the lawnmowers. That's like the utility shed or something. Well, that ended up being the airport terminal. Wow. Okay. And there's two gates at this terminal, okay? So it's either one or two, okay? Not hard to get, get lost in. And the people who are the ticket counter people are the same people who wheel the, the stairs the, up the to the plane. stairway. Point.
0: I was going to ask if you came out on a stairway <laughs> on wheels.
1: It was. <laughs> and they're the same people taking your luggage out and bringing it into the thing, okay? So, I mean, it's, this is the kind of situation. So They had I, my, their own airport a <laughs> regional airport, you're right. And I'm thinking – and there was only two flights a day from Chicago. Uh, and by the time I got off the plane, uh, I think it was, it was a new new flight. They'd only started like a week before. I think there was three other people on the plane. And my bag was waiting in the lobby by the time I got off. I mean I thought this is strange. They picked me up, okay? They drove me into town. And uh, they said, what do you want to do first? Go back to the hotel? I said, no, I would like to see your concert hall. Okay, so here we are in Paducah, Kentucky, which ends up being this really, you know, beautiful old 1800. Uh, looks like a beautiful cowboy town with brick roads and everything, you know, streets. Yeah. And it's right on the water where the, the Tennessee and the Mississippi come together, okay? And the river industry, is you see barges pulling all this coal or uh-huh. stones and gravel or lumber, whatever. I mean, that's stuff I read about in school right. that I didn't still you realize. You were in another land. It, I didn't really realize yeah. it still existed. And they had this beautiful flood wall that's uh, painted by artists uh, to represent something, even the Lewis and Clark landing there, mm. which is very important to them. And I looked at this concert hall that they put me in front of. It's called the Carson Meyer uh, – Carson Center. And it's a $48 million concert hall that is unbelievable. The shape of it on the outside is like one of those ferry boats. Okay. The shape of it. Uh, And it's gorgeous. And it was only eight years old and it was paid for. Wow! Now, there's 20,000 people in – Paducah, Kentucky. Of course, the county has like three hundred fifty thousand. Right. But the culture is different there. It's a bluegrass, in uh, rock and roll in society. I mean, that's it. But there's twenty thousand people who live in Paducah, who wanted to have art and culture in their life because it's nestled right at the very western tip, very thin part of Kentucky. Where if I go north, St. Louis is three hours. Uh-huh. If I go south. Two hours is Nashville, Memphis, yeah, and, and all the parameters. So, what happens is th- the doctors and the and, and everybody, the financial planners and the lawyers, and they have two big medical facilities there. So, the prim- primarily the medical field. To go to hear the St. Louis Symphony play a Beethoven symphony, it's getting a babysitter for your kids. Yeah, and six five, hour round six trip. Six hour round trip. Or, trip yeah. A hotel. In a a big meal, you're going to spend $1,000 to hear Beethoven 6. That's an expensive Beethoven. Yeah. Where they finally decided as a community, why don't we put something in our hometown so that we not only can have our own entertainment and go and come as we please, but we also will attract national acts who will come through there. Like the National Symphony stops by once in a while on their tours. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld plays there. easy. Yeah. It's a legitimate plays. venue that can attract anything. Exactly right. Huh. So uh, they decided to put the time, energy, and resource into this beautiful hall. So when I saw that, I said, something's got to be going on here. So we go through the audition process, uh, heard the orchestra, conducted that first week, uh, the symphony. There was a nice connection right off the bat. And now, you know, in my ninth season, it's transformed into a again a fully professional orchestra, of players who come from five different states to play with the Paducah Symphony Orchestra. Wow! And I'm telling you, it's awesome. It's a great great orchestra.
0: How did the the um, the funding for that work? Was there like a ballot referendum? Did they have a city
1: council thing? Was it crowdsourced? I mean, I guess there wasn't crowdsourcing yet back then. There was there was a combination. It came from the state. Uh, the big grants—they got some big grants. They got some, and then local uh, government money, but the bulk of it came from the Myers Foundation, okay, uh, which owned uh, the Carson Meyer Foundation owned uh, a Coca-Cola plant in Paducah, and that's where all the money basically came from. But then individual sponsors and uh, patrons.
0: Huh? Um, do you remember the first time that you conducted? I mean. The first time you went from I'm a trumpet
1: player to I'm standing in front of an orchestra and I'm in charge. Yeah, the first time I uh, – I, my first position actually was with the Genesee Symphony Orchestra in Batavia, New York, which was just a, a small – like a community slash regional orchestra. It was made up of school educators who wanted to still play, Eastman School of Music students who wanted experience in repertoire and make a little cash, uh, and then some amateurs who just played – So it was a kind of a wide range of talent and ability, uh, but I worked with that orchestra for 17 years, and that was my first position. And I tell you, you know, it's easy to sound good or look good as a conductor when you stand up in front of the Concerto Bau or the New York Philharmonic, because they're going to save you, and they're going to make you look like a star. The trick is getting in front of them, okay? You have to have the right agent to get in front of it, because everybody's a genius if you read their bios, Right. Uh, But to conduct an orchestra that doesn't have that ability and to make them successful and to make them sound good and to build an audience is really where you learn to conduct because it's in the rehearsal where you encourage, you nurture and you teach them how to play, to be better musicians collectively and also individually. So I look at that training as something that I never would have learned reading a textbook or sitting in a conducting class in a school of fantasy land about this is how you wave your hands because that just produces stick wavers who don't know how to get a sound or don't know how to connect and inspire That particular musician, that particular personality or person, because as you know, 70 plus musicians, uh, even though they're professional, they're all different people, different personalities. This inspires this one this way, but you can't speak to that one this way because it shuts them down. So how do you get them to play past their current capabilities on a rehearsal basis or a seasonal basis so that they feel accomplished and safe in this environment? You know, I view it – that my job and one of our responsibilities as a conductor is to create an environment that's non-threatening, but so that artist feels comfortable enough with clear leadership, so they know a first of all the expectation of the tempo, the dynamic, the the style or the phrasing, so they know what I'm looking for sound-wise and musically, but yet. They're in a safe environment and not being micromanaged so that they can do their job to the very best of their ability. And if you don't give a clear understanding of what the expectation is, people are like, well, well, what are we going to do here? What do we want? Does he want it louder? Does he want it softer? Does he want it faster? Does he want it slower? And especially when you're doing music that's so well-recorded. That's, everybody has an idea, a preconceived idea of what that, is, that piece should go like or they've played it so many times with other orchestras who have a different style or, yeah. song, or other conductors who are asking for different things, different kind of uh, texture and, and, and influences. That I have to be so convincing in my musical judgment, in my technique and, and deliver it so clearly that 70 musicians look at me and say, that's the only way we're going to play it. Hmm. But if I walk in with a false sense of, mm, he doesn't look like he really knows this, uh, he's not really decided yet, uh, it's a little wishy-washy, it's a little vague, then we don't have time for debate. Oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this, I want to do that, because the concerts come up too quick. We have a limited, expensive rehearsal time, so that I have to be convincing and conjoling and inspiring to them to make them feel that That's the only way this piece goes. This is so random, but I was
0: reminded of a quote from, did you ever watch Northern Exposure, the Mm -hmm. TV show? Um, Is that the one with the moose? The one with the moose. Um, uh, The woman was talking about, there was a judge that was in town, and the judge was talking about being a judge, and she says, the trick to being a judge is is that even if you're only 51% sure, you have to act like you're 100% sure every time. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of sounds like what you're, you you can't go in there and be halfway. You got to go the whole way.
1: Let me write that down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, How often do you have all these rehearsals, and then when you show up for the show, everything is completely off somehow, or different, or... It just turns out differently than you – the trajectory you were on.
1: You know, sometimes when I walk into a rehearsal – and I only have a limited time to rehearse. We have three three-hour rehearsals uh, on, a, uh, on a Saturday and Sunday and then perform. This is how I get these great players because it doesn't conflict with the Naples Philharmonic. It doesn't conflict with Tampa. So I can do these power weekends and, and get the greatest players. I have 70 – over 70 musicians, I call it my All Star Orchestra. Both situations are the same, uh, but uh, they come from all over Florida to play in Punta Gorda. It's absolutely amazing. I have My principal bass uh, is a retired bassist from the Metropolitan Opera. Hmm. For 50 years he was there. Wow. His wife, Judy Yankus, is, played concertmaster at my last concert, and she was in the first violin section. My principal percussion, Dean Anderson, was principal percussion in the Boston Pops. I mean, it goes on and on. I have wow! People retiring from the New York Philharmonic are getting word they that want the this weather is here the place too. <laughs> to, That's it. <laughs> yeah. They come to this beautiful location that you and I live, you yeah. know. Uh, but they want to play a little music to stay alive and still be an artist, but don't want a heavy 150 service season anymore. So they come in and they're enjoying it. And if they're having musical experiences, they're loving it. So I get to work with this kind of caliber of musician, which is just a really, really gift, and I'm, I'm blessed to be with them. Meaning you generally turn on the good game when you show up for the game. <laughs> so I got to be – you know, the goal is to be the best musician on the stage, but when you got yeah people like that, you got to work. You got to be prepared, and you got to be really, really on your game all the time. Now, the thing is, my I cannot – I can rehearse notes, rhythms, and ideas, but what you don't want to do in a rehearsal setting is rehearse and – self-prepare the emotion uh-huh. because then it's fake. Yeah, understood. It's, it's like You fake. can't
0: get up to that level for every rehearsal because exactly. then by the time you're there, you're not really up to that level. It,
1: well, even just Or if you that, are, it's sort of. But f- then it, this becomes this fake emotion that you've over-rehearsed. Okay? It's like you're trying to fake joy after yeah. you've already rehearsed joy. Yeah. You have to create a situation on the stage in performance that they've not seen before that's going to make it special. Like, I could push a tempo a little faster here to get more excitement or I can slow a retardando, stretch the phrase a little slower before the resolution so they're really watching and it makes it magical. And when you change huh. it in performance, then they start to get on the edge of their chair thinking, okay, let's hang on for the ride and Let's make this happen. That's when it becomes real.
0: Huh? You're pl- they're playing the song and the instruments, and you're kind of
1: playing them. Exactly right. Because I don't conduct the orchestra; I conduct the music. Time for your third song. Let's do it. What is it? You know, when I first became a trumpet player, I was uh, I wanted to play baseball. I mean, I was just a kid. You know, yeah. my father knew Joe DiMaggio and the whole thing. I mean, baseball was cool. Did I you, to play.
0: you play baseball? I did play. You know, position?
1: I played at a first base and I pitched a little bit. Okay. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I, I played. I got into a, even in high school, junior varsity. You know, I, I played on that level. Um, and I thought I was going to be a ball player until my coach came up to me and said to me, you're going to have to make a decision, either baseball or music, because you can't do both to the level that I, we think you can, right? Right. So that was a hard, hard week for me and soul searching, because you know, fun would have been baseball, but the music thing was going really well. Like I said, I was already starting to play, I was in the youth orchestra, and I was starting to play with the RPO, the Russian Philharmonic, and it was hard to turn my back on that, because I actually had ability. But the way it came about was, in middle school, I was the last trumpet player in the band, because I didn't have any interest. I wasn't inspired. I was just sort of playing. right? And I wanted to play ball. Yeah. So until we had this new band director and he came in right out of college and he was going to teach us how to do things and set all these standards. And he made me stand up in front of the band once and play an F major scale. Okay. He would periodically pick people who he thought needed the attention. Mm -hmm. I was, I needed attention and I stood up as last trumpeter in the band, I Remember, there were like 13 of us, you know, and I could not play an F major scale. And I was humiliated in front of my colleagues, my friends. You knew you couldn't play it. He knew I couldn't play yeah. it. That's why he asked me. Yeah. Okay. This is his technique. Yeah. Okay. Tough love. And I was embarrassed. I mean, really, really embarrassed. And in middle school's the time, you, you know, you're trying to make friends mm-hmm. and it's a tough thing going on, you know. I remember going home and saying to my parents over dinner, I want to take lessons. And my father was the local barber, okay? Hmm. Here he comes from Italy. You talk about the uh, barbiera di Seville, right? Yeah, yeah. So he was the barber of, <laughs> of, of the, the town that I lived in, which meant it was not easy for me because if I got in trouble in school, you know, the principal and all the teachers, they were his customers. Yeah. He knew what happened before I got home.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there's a good thing and a bad thing. But he did know the local trumpet teacher at the university because he was a customer. And so of course, you know, over over the thing, he says, I'll see him in a couple of weeks, he'll be in for a haircut, I'll ask him. So it worked out. He said he would teach me. And the first piece he taught me was this piece called A Trumpeter's Lullaby by Leroy Anderson. Now, Leroy Anderson was the composer in residence with the Boston Pops for years, okay? So we're talking about Arthur Fiedler days uh, with the Boston Pops and Leroy Anderson, who wrote everything from Sleigh Ride to uh, this kind of music, a lot of tongue-in-cheek, fun, light stuff that were used in the pop series. He wrote this piece for the principal trumpet at that time was Roger Voisin, the principal trumpeter, and this became a real deal. Now, I remember that after, uh, again, it was because uh, you asking me uh, for this great project, I hadn't thought about this in, you know, like 30 years, you know. But that was my first piece, my first challenge, and I remember thinking. This is so hard. This is what a difficult thing. I'll never be able to learn this thing. What does this guy want me to do? And as I listen back in preparation for the show today, it's the simplest, easy little thing. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, but it was a challenge for a kid who couldn't play an F major scale yeah. to now play a piece of music and then have some style with it and some, some, uh, some class and something and learn how to play the instrument through the repertoire. right? You know. So I put this on the list because it was my first challenge and the first piece I played. And you hadn't
0: listened to it in a long time, probably. Probably 30 years. Uh, all right, this is uh, uh, Leroy Anderson's A Trumpeter's Lullaby. Uh, this is, was written and arranged in 1949, performed here by David Hickman. Uh, how long did it take
1: you to play that? Well, it seemed like a whole school year right. at that time, you know what I mean? But uh, it is just a great, it's just a great thing. And I think about this, you know, I just got lucky to get that trumpet teacher because he was the right teacher for me. He knew how to get to me. He knew how to show me without denigrating me or making me feel like I didn't know what I was doing. And he, and he made me better so that within two years of middle school, I went from that last year trumpet player, so my freshman year in high school to principal trumpet. Yeah. In two years. And then you know, and then what it did was give me confidence. It made me feel good about my music. It it gave me friendships. That I wouldn't have had because now everybody wants to know the principal trumpet player because you're a good player, yeah, yeah, you know, and the better players type type of thing. So it it was a game changer for me, and I often am reminded of that as I do like master classes and all these different levels into the university uh, level. That you know, teaching is not about opening a book and showing a kid how to play music. Teaching is about getting to kids in their heart, in their mind, in their soul, finding the pulse and getting that child to through music to be able to say something. You know, some people the, the radio, you know, the micro your your verbiage is your your vehicle, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's your vehicle, and that's how you express yourself, and that's how you communicate with the world, your talent, you know. Whether you're a writer or you're a sculptor or whatever you do, you're a mathematician, we're all artists at some point. Hmm. And I think becoming getting kids to realize you're not just playing an instrument, that's not the start that's the starting point. But getting to make that instrument your voice and getting to say and show us who you are through that instrument, through that sound, is what it's all about. And when you start to do that, even in an elementary school level, kids will just aspire to that. I love it. And good teachers should be really rewarded because I think when people say, I don't really have any musical talent or I don't really like classical music, it's because they've had a bad musical experience. We find that when these kids come to these uh, Carnegie Hall programs and sit in that audience and not just observe an orchestra playing—last year we did the uh, recorder program, which means Carnegie Hall supplied every third grader in Charlotte County with a recorder. Mm-hmm. Their teachers taught them this program that's with all the materials they have, so that they learned several songs. So not only were they in the audience sitting there, they were playing along with the symphony. That's pretty cool. So to go home and say, "I heard the Pontagorda Symphony yeah. today," to mama and you know to their family, not only did they hear it, I performed with them, and that opens up possibilities all over the place. Mm. It's an amazing thing.
0: Um, uh, if you somebody handed you a trumpet right now, how close could you get to playing that?
1: Well, you you know you talked about was it northern exposure? Yeah, it, I would probably sound like a moose. Okay,
0: <laughs> seriously, <laughs> seriously, I mean you know,
1: you'd, you'd be able
0: to pull something off. You right? know,
1: you said earlier you still play for fun. I got to tell you, when you don't practice and you because I was starting yeah. to conduct so much and study scores, and then the, the playing became lesser and less and less. I didn't have fun not sounding good. I didn't have fun missing a note. Right. It's not what I worked for. So it was easy for me to say, okay, let me put him in the case and lock it up because that was that chapter that got me to the podium. Right. And really, the journey has been how did I get from the back row of the orchestra to the front?
0: Huh. Um, uh, What would the 13 or 14 year old self there that decided they wanted to take uh, trumpet lessons think of where you are today in the world?
1: You know, I thought I was going to retire as a trumpet player. I never thought I would leave the back row. I thought, like I said to you early, uh, you know, just when you think you learned something, you've achieved something, you think, yeah. oh, I've made it now. Well, you know, it was the Rochester Philharmonic. It was the Cleveland Orchestra. Then it was Europe. And then all of a sudden, it was conducting. I had never had an inkling or an idea that I wanted to be a conductor. Some people just know they want to be a conductor. I don't know why. What would, what would you want to be a conductor for? Right. I mean, we don't make any sound. You're just waving your hands uh, <laughs> until the music stops. You turn around and bow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, is that you have to be a great musician first. And that was my hard knocks life experience of learn to be a great musician. Because as a musician who I kind of think of myself as an orchestra's conductor, because I know what the back row needs to see and hear so that they can be successful to the audience, for the audience. I'm not approaching it from, what do I look like? Or how is this going to look? You know, I see these people who are conducting on TV and you know, they haven't sweat in 10 years. You know, the thing is, is that I know the language because I remember sitting there when they have a guest conductor, for example, and the, and the people around me were muttering, oh, yeah, look at that. That's a waste of time. Or well, he's talking about that and, and that's irrelevant. Or, you know, the length of the eighth. note. just show us. You know what I mean? Instead of talking about it. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. Don't talk. Show And let them play because they're there to play, not to listen to me talk.
0: Um, speaking of you know, putting on a show and what you look like uh, on the website and all the marketing materials, you're clean shaven and you've got a robust beard. Is that a, well? Are you in between shows or is this the no? New look? This is
1: the this is the new look. You know, we're, I'm hunkering down for this winter. It's going to dip down winter. into seventies yeah. <laughs> next week, and I just want to make sure I'm prepared.
0: <laughs> um, okay, we are basically out of time, but we missed some questions that I want to just speed round through. Um, are you into musicals at all? No. Okay. Uh, Have you seen many concerts non-orchestral in your life? No. Um, That's why I didn't ask these, because I was
1: pretty sure I knew. Um, You sang a little bit earlier. Are you a singer? Uh, No, but, you know, ear, having a good ear, I have to be able to read and sight sing a score without reference.
0: Okay. Uh, Karaoke? No. Uh, (laughs) Dancing? Uh, No. Uh,
1: Okay. Uh, Fourth song that almost made it to the list? Um, You know, I wish I could have said something more lofty, you know, like like the maestro, like I'm I'm not doing sleigh ride anymore. I'm just going to conduct Bruckner from now on. But No.
0: Um, you said you conducted The Nutcracker 40 times at least uh, while in Austin. Uh, are you, when was the last time you conducted The Nutcracker, and can you
1: do that with your eyes closed? I can't even drive by a mall in December <laughs> in, just in fear that I'm going to hear that.
0: <laughs> uh, good answer. Um, okay. Uh, are there any songs you'll avoid listening to for some reason? Uh,
2: no, nothing off the top of my head.
0: Okay. Uh, last question. Do you have three people that you can re- recommend that we pursue? Oh, wait, wait, I have a question for oh, that. Oh, Richard's got a question. I've got one question.
2: Um, if you were going to conduct, uh, I did this um, with...
0: Shannon, Shannon, Arnold.
2: I asked Shannon this. Oh. If you were to con- conduct with a rock band and do like a, like a Metallica S&M type concert uh, where you you conducted the orchestra and the rock band played along, what band would it be?
1: Oh, uh, it's interesting. I did a program successfully with uh, Pink Floyd the cover band. It was called The Machine. Uh, they were very great. It had video, great Soloist, great artist. It sounded like the recording. And I have to tell you, I have great respect for Emerson Lake and Palmer, Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of thing, and all the other bands that did use this was really cutting edge at the day. Uh, And it adds a lot to the performance. I love it. So is your answer Pink Floyd? I would say Pink Floyd. All right. All
0: right. Okay. Um, And so then back to where was I? Oh, yeah. Three people who you would like to recommend that we
1: pursue as guests for this show, even if they're not local. Okay. They're definitely not local. Okay. Okay. Toscanini. Uh, Leonard Bernstein and George Schulte. They're not local. <laughs> you have Leonard Bernstein in your phone there? <laughs> <laughs> you can just pass along those email addresses we'll do our best. Because I would love to talk to them myself and think, what were you thinking, man? What were you thinking?
0: Uh, okay. Well, that is all the time we have. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to
1: leave us with? I think this is a great show, great medium, and thank you both for the opportunity. Thank you so much. See you at the symphony.
0: We make this podcast in the studios of WGCU Public Radio in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer and periodic host. Our executive producer is Chris Duffis. Our theme song was made by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, we're going back one year to episode 40 of this show with Fort Myers artist and all-around good guy Eric Schneider and one of his early core music memories.
3: The one that I'm trying to get to is Bowie because that was the one who I kind of personified as a five year old. Hmm. If if you can wrap your brain around that, <laughs> and I do have photographic evidence, I, and I had the outfit, and oftentimes in my tidy whities with like with the vest and the hair and the guitar.
0: If you hear uh, Bowie or particularly Ziggy Stardust, does it make you automatically remember? Uh, that time and place
3: in your life it you know there's moments it, a lot of my memories from that time are repressed for obvious reasons and it's like the whole thing like where were the spiders like i you know i'm looking for spot anytime i saw a spider i was like well is that my friend like are spiders dangerous you know is this something that <laughs> <laughs> like you know i'm like i remember so many funny little quirky things it's like there wasn't the same filtering, you know, back in the 70s. Like, yeah. You know, it wasn't, we weren't politically correct. You weren't saying, oh, don't play that. That's not for kids. It was just, but. Um, well, do you want to hear the song? And we I can think,
0: imagine you in your whitey tidies. I your, think that's uh, awesome. Your mullet before it was cool, before it was not cool, before it was cool, before it was not cool.
3: Absolutely.
2: Keep listening. <laughs> Next time on Three Song Stories. Eighth grade.
3: Okay. And I had the wig with the James Brown outfit. I, had, I looked fly because it went, slide, face plant. Bah! <laughs> <laughs>